This coverage is live and uncensored. So if you have any small children present, you may want to have them leave the room. What's going on, guys? It's Rich. Just doing something a little different this week. Instead of doing our usual live show every Thursday night, I actually, since I have a lot of stuff that I'm working on, a lot of projects, I decided to do a pre-taped show. So this show is actually being recorded on uh, Thursday in some areas of the world, but really Friday, August 23rd, 2013. And this isn't going to be a u- the usual numbered episode um, I'm actually going to start just calling uh, pre-recorded shows like this MTR in 60 only because I figured we'll focus on one of the four topics and bang it out in 60 minutes. That way you guys get a short show that you can consume quickly, whether it's on a drive or on a commute. Not only that, but it allows me to dedicate some time to certain subjects. Now, I figured going pre-recorded this week, we were going to touch on some MMA and some wrestling, but I feel that wrestling had so much going on this week and so many things happening with SummerSlam and Raw, and I wanted to talk about Impact and also some TNA contract issues that I figured it would be better suited to just dedicate this first installment of MTR and 60 to our wrestling segment. So with that said, let's get the ball rolling and start with SummerSlam. Booker T, take it away. We want the gold, sucker! Hulk Hogan, we coming for you, nigga! I want to get the ball rolling with SummerSlam. SummerSlam was actually very good from start to finish. There were maybe one or two low spots, but I just wanted to talk about the card as a whole. I really was impressed with some of the things that went down on this pay-per-view, but I do have to say that there were certain things that I've talked about for weeks that were coming, and some of them actually came to fruition. Others, you know, they they, they didn't work out as planned, and I was kind of bummed, but... Let's get right into it. The kickoff match was Dean Ambrose taking on Rob Van Dam in a very competitive match. Of course, it ended with shenanigans due to interference from the Shield. But nonetheless, the match itself showed tremendous promise, not only with Rob Van Dam working with the Shield on an ongoing basis, but once again, Ambrose continues to impress. I I continue to stress that when you break up the Shield, Everybody swears that Roman Reigns is going to be the breakout star. And honestly, I beg to differ only because 
while Roman Reigns embodies the WWE look that they're always looking for, and he has the the bloodline and the heritage, the fact of the matter is that he's his mic work is quite honestly shit. Ambrose, meanwhile, he he channels this 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 darker side with his promo work, which is always just a a pleasure to watch. And Rollins, Rollins is incredibly athletic, um, has an impressive move set, and not only that, but in in working with the Shield the way he has, his promo game is definitely stepping up. I mean, in Ring of Honor, his promos were pretty decent, but working alongside Ambrose and Roman Reigns, it allows Rollins to also be kind of like the the gap between um, an established promo like. Dean Ambrose and a you know one word answer like Roman Reigns. I, I equate Roman Reigns pretty much to how um, Bruce Willis was Corbin Dallas in The Fifth Element. Just one word answers, real monotone. It's like believe in the Shield. Just there's no there's no real drive. I'm not saying that he's emotionless. He's definitely not on that Randy Orton level of bland. But I just feel that he when it comes to cutting a standard speaking promo. He doesn't really emote as well as when they're like cutting an angry snuff film style shield promo. But again, Ambrose is definitely the guy that I have high hopes for when this group breaks up. Now, Kane and Bray Wyatt, of course, they met in a ring of fire match, which honestly, I kind of knew it was going to end the way it did because it was already announced that Kane was going to do See No Evil 2. And Bray Wyatt, of course, secured the victory with his finisher, Sister Abigail. Now, the Ring of Fire was a nice touch. I felt that it wasn't used as much as I would have liked. I mean, the main focus of it was to keep the other members of the Wyatt family out. But, you know, it's Kane. You expected something a little bit more... I kind of want to say gruesome, you know, but it just... with With regards to what was being done in that match... I expected the Ring of Fire to play a bigger part. That's not to say that the match wasn't good. On the contrary, Kane works pretty well with everybody, and Wyatt definitely impressed in his pay-per-view outing. But I expected, I don't know, I, I felt that there was something more. Maybe it's just because I've seen previous, you know, Inferno matches, and I've seen legitimate hardcore matches. I mean, I, I shared... Uh, some photos from the new WWE 2K14 and one of the pictures that was shown that they gave us a screenshot was the edge by spear the uh, edge spearing Mick Foley off you know from ringside through the flaming tables like you know that's a that's a that's the kind of spot I was expecting something like that something of that magnitude while I understand from the PG era standpoint it's very difficult to kind of you know, go in that direction. I expected them to do something more. I I just want to say something, something more aggressive, but overall the chemistry between both guys was good. And I'm hoping that when Kane finishes filming, see no evil two, he comes back and he's a little bit more sinister. I think that the Daniel Bryan relationship while effective in giving us a new direct, a new, put it like this, giving us a new, facet of Kane's personality I kind of felt that it also watered him down a bit and we lost that edge that sinister monstrous edge that we knew from you know some of Kane's previous feuds but we shall see what happens uh the Rhodes Scholars of course exploded as Cody Rhodes took on Damian Sandow in an incredibly competitive match I think Cody Rhodes definitely 
coming into his own, establishing himself as a face, uh, literally and figuratively, since he shaved off his mustache for this match. But it definitely was very good. Uh, Damian Sandow, of course, on the losing end, but it was no big deal. I mean, he still has the Money in the Bank briefcase, and it kind of adds a measure of revenge to Cody and kind of makes him just more, more in tune with the fans. Now, the World Heavyweight Championship match with Del Rio and Christian was... I really felt that the wrong guy lost in the, uh, you know, the wrong guy won in this match. And, you know, that was one of the reasons why I played Christian's theme music at the start of the segment. It was just because I felt that Del Rio's just become so, so watered down, so one dimensional. And part of that obviously is the la- the loss of Ricardo Rodriguez. But the other is the fact that he just hasn't really grown into his gimmick in a way that he can carry it on his own. Now, of course, you can easily say, yeah, but you know, the the wrestling is a big part of it, and he's a, he's, a, he's a good wrestler. He is, but I feel that there's more to Del Rio, and, and I think part of it is, is adapting to the WWE style. I know that he has that cruiserweight moveset in there. I know it's there, but he's too busy working the strong style that it kind of just makes him seem very bland, very generic. It's easy to channel, you know, Mexican JBL, but... For WWE hoping to have this guy on the level that, you know, the late Eddie Guerrero was or Rey Mysterio was, it it, it requires more than just this guy coming out there and cutting his, I am a hero of the Latin community. Like, there's more to it. I mean, I felt that Ricardo really was what helped Del Rio connect with the Latin audience just because... Ricardo Rodriguez had just natural charisma and he talked, it almost felt like he was talking to the fans when he introduced Del Rio. But again, I was bummed also because I I like Christian. I think Christian is a very hard worker. The guy's been dealt a a pretty raw deal injury wise. And I think as as cliched as it sounds, Christian has one more match. And one of the things I said was it would have been cool if he would have beat Del Rio he would have got one more match and he would have retired. Not to say that I would have wanted that, but it would have just been a cool way to kind of close that out. Christian's a guy that he's from that from that era of wrestlers that they've saved their money. They've kind of stacked their chips. So if he were to retire, he'd probably be very well off, well into old age, much, much like Edge is, in, in my opinion. But I think with Christian, he's going to be a guy that they're always going to have him kind of in that title picture. But... The odds of him holding the belt again, I just feel they're very slim with the wealth of talent that's currently on the roster. But they may surprise me and give him the belt again. I mean, I've always liked Christian as champion. He connects well with the fans. He has a a very solid moveset that varies between regular WWE style with some some shades of high flyer in there, which is nice. And Del Rio, he, he did make Del Rio look good, but it's just Del Rio so bland that I'd rather him not have the belt. Uh, The Divas were in action. Natalia took on Brie Bella. Brie Bella, of course, accompanied by Nikki and uh, Kool-Aid Die Job Eva Marie. And, of course, Natalia accompanied by the Funkadactyls. Now, the match itself, you know, it was was passable. It's not to say that the Bellas have improved because I continue to feel that they're just treading water. But for what it was, I mean, the match probably would have was roughly five minutes. So it was a welcome break, you know, between the title match and, you know, the the big match between 
Brock Lesnar and CM Punk. So, you know, a nice five-minute match. It was okay, but I I expect so much more from the Divas division, especially when they're being trained by some very solid hands in developmental. But it just seems, like I said, the Bellas are more about the style than the substance in, in, in the sense that they're, they look good, they're camera-ready, but... There's no substance to their in-ring performance. There's none whatsoever. Their storytelling in matches sucks. Their selling sucks. The only thing that they're good at is their their natural heelish charisma and just being marketable. But it's a shame because the big component of you know WWE is, I don't know, wrestling. It's wrestling before entertainment. You know, it's it's like Natalia, yeah, she doesn't go out there and cut the best promos, but she wrestles really good. She's technically sound, and she she can hold her own out there. I think out of the current crop of active divas, I really want to say Layla's improved quite a bit. Natalia's still there. She's very solid. Alicia Fox fluctuates. Tamina, of course. But the the days of, of you know a couple of good, solid divas on the roster is just out the window. The other thing that gets me is the fact that you got divas like AJ and Caitlyn that they're really kind of the cornerstones of the division, but they're really being overshadowed by the whole Total Divas thing. That's It's a gift and a curse. You know, you're getting mainstream exposure, but the, the women who are really breaking their humps to get your division noticed aren't getting the, their, their due spotlight. Simple as that. Now, the best versus the beast was, without a doubt, probably one of my favorite matches of the card. Now, there's a couple of reasons for it. I said last week and the week prior that CM Punk was going to get an awesome match out of Brock Lesnar. And that's exactly what we got. You know, um, Brock Lesnar physically imposing, incredibly violent, volatile. And while he does come out there and he typically uses his, his you know, Tasmanian devil flurry of violence... There, there is some great collegiate wrestling under there. There's still some MMA technique under there. Same applies to CM Punk. CM Punk still has, you know, his Ring of Honor roots, his indie roots, plus, you know, working with, with uh, Caesar Gracie's Jiu-Jitsu. You can see that he's, he's picking up little things and adding them to his repertoire. And honestly, that was a big part of what made this work. Now, of course, CM Punk bumped like a beast in this match, especially the way that Brock Lesnar was ragdolling him throughout the match. But the story that was being told, the involvement of Heyman, the emotion that was being channeled just told an incredible story. And it's like, yeah, you could say Brock Lesnar, he looked good in his match against John Cena, and it was good. But that was what I'd like to call a sports entertainment match. You know, it was it was hard-hitting, but it was still grounded in sports entertainment. Punk and Brock Lesnar was a fight. More so a fight than a wrestling match. And even though there was some wrestling in there, it was more so just a just a, a complete um, flurry of violence from both guys. I mean, the match went about about 20, almost 25 minutes. CM Punk, it was funny because he does a lot of subtle things that really help his character. We all joke about him being Wolverine. And it was funny because he was channeling the, um, he was rocking some blue and gold trunks uh, akin to, you know, the, the the Wolverine costume as of late, which has the yellow with the blue uh, triangle. So definitely very cool, very subtle. Of course, Punk being a comic fan, I really appreciated that. 
the the storytelling, like I said, in this match was the fucking high point. And not only that, but you knew that they wanted to reinforce that this was a fight. You knew it was legit when CM Punk bit Brock Lesnar's fucking ear. You know, I, I was like, wow, that's that's pretty badass. I was also very impressed with CM Punk getting Brock Lesnar up for the GTS. It was definitely very cool. A lot of hard-hitting chair shots, a lot of just just violence, which really told such a solid story. And honestly, if Brock Lesnar wasn't on TV from now until Mania, like they've said, it would be okay because he could be nursing the the injuries from that match. And you can still put CM Punk over by saying, you know, Brock Lesnar may have won the battle, but CM Punk won the war because he's still standing. And these are the kind of things that, in terms of long-term booking, are what make this shit work. It's what makes it work. And that's one of the things people, they always feel Punk is a, is a one-trick pony, an indie darling, but... People tend to forget Punk is a student of the game. He is 100% a student of his craft. Everything from the from the macho man elbow to, to the way he cuts his promos to the things that he references on the fly, which I'll get into when we talk about Monday Night Raw. The fact of the matter is CM Punk made Brock Lesnar look like an all-star in this match. That's not to say Lesnar didn't do his part because he did, but the right opponent makes a huge difference. If I had to group Brock Lesnar's appearances, you know, on WWE so far in terms of his best performances, I'd probably rank him and Punk first, him and Cena second, and probably him and Triple H third, only because the, the Triple H matches were, with the exception of the Mania match, which was a lot better, their their chemistry just seemed off. It almost felt like Brock Lesnar was holding back because, you know, you don't want to hurt the boss versus a guy like CM Punk that if maybe you, you, you accidentally get a stiff shot in there, it's all right because he'll he'll give you one back, you know, and if you have that type of trust in your opponent, it's going to make for a better match. That's all I'm saying. Now, the mixed tag match, I expected so much more from this match, especially because Biggie Langston is, is a solid wrestler and, and Ziggler as well, and... AJ and Caitlyn have tremendous chemistry, and it, it was it felt a little broken, kind of at the midway point. The match ran about seven minutes, and I don't know. It kind of just felt like it it needed to be more. There needed to be more to the match, especially you know it, I can attribute the the lackluster response more so to coming off of that extremely impressive Lesnar and Punk match. But still, I it's weird because Ziggler. And Big E, especially how how well they speak of Big E, especially in NXT, I expected them to have, I don't know, a bit, uh, a better match. But you can always extend this feud a little bit and kind of be have it be a placeholder. But Ziggler definitely needs to be back in the title picture. He's the guy that, uh, for as much as, as the Dirt Sheets has talked about people stepping up in John Cena's absence due to his injury... Dolph Ziggler's that guy. He can carry the company. He's charismatic. He has great uh, presence on screen. And not only that, but he can wrestle and bump like a motherfucker. And it's and it's just a, a pleasure to see. I was really bummed that their match at SummerSlam wasn't as good as I expected it to be. But who knows? Maybe this is just the, the beginning of what's going to be a, a long and lengthy feud. Now, of course, the big one, John Cena, Daniel Bryan... Um, 
tremendous it was it was such a tremendous match we got to see a lot out of cena especially when the guy is walking around with what with, with what is equivalent to a to a small melon in his elbow and of course the swerve the swerve pissed off a ton of people but we we've talked about this guys we've talked about it for so long and i i honestly feel that the you could tell a, a better story at the at the at the moment with daniel bryan chasing for the title but i will say that you could have had orton cash in monday night and it would have been just as 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 important as as him cashing in on SummerSlam. and the only reason i say that is because daniel bryan deserved that moment and i'm not saying that you know his celebration after winning the belt wasn't a moment but i felt that he needed to just enjoy being champion it was the culmination of an incredible road and an incredible journey, not to mention the fact that he beat Cena clean. Now, of course, everybody says, yeah, well, you know, Daniel Bryan got over because he beat Cena clean. Yeah, he did. And he did get over in that regard. But as easily as he got over, it was wiped away in in, in the blink of an eye with a pedigree and an RKO. Don't get me wrong. Orton is champion. I understand. And, he's, and he makes it work, especially with the right opponent and Bryan and him have had some good matches, but think of this. Randy Orton, the belt for him is a prop. It's 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 just there. It's it's a it's a it's a special effect, so to speak. When you look at Daniel Bryan with a belt, you're 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 seeing a guy that started from the bottom and as cliched as it is, you know, he started from the bottom and now he's at the top. At the top of his chain, and it wasn't an easy road. He had to endure hardships. He had to endure the independence. He had to endure NXT. He had to endure being fired. You know the the programs with Kane, the the partnerships with Kane, which weren't bad. They actually helped bring his character full circle. But I just felt that that for for as much as he's done and as physical as he's been and the great matches he's delivered, he deserved his moment. That's all I'm gonna say in terms of. Of the ma- the way the match ended, you know, and with regards to him getting a clean pinfall on Cena, Cena did the right thing. You know, he put Daniel Bryan over, and he did it right. He did it clean. There were no shenanigans, and there was incredible storytelling. Not only that, but I'm sure that there were a couple of shots that definitely, you know, came through, and they actually hit each other a few times just because, you know, John Cena had that black eye Monday night, and the guys were definitely worse for wear. And Cena, Cena took a brunt of abuse. He even, you know, he took the yes lock. He took a, a lot of offense from, from Daniel Bryan, which was tremendous considering that the guy's elbow was just disgusting. Now, of course, you know, Orton cashed it in. And there, I kind of felt that there was a bit of a delay from when, you know, he got pedigreed and, and then Daniel Bryan gets pinned like... Like, I kind of felt that the pacing in that was a little off. But overall, the card itself was solid. And some, you know, a lot of my picks didn't pan out. I really wanted Christian to win. But they did some great storytelling. And SummerSlam definitely in the top five pay-per-views of 2013 for sure. Um, That Punk match and the Cena-Brian match definitely. It's kind of a toss-up. But I want to go with the Punk match only because there was so much more physicality in terms of just just brute force like it was Brock Lesnar ragdolling CM Punk and overall like I said it was it was a solid match from both guys and if I don't see Brock Lesnar till WrestleMania at least he went over and honestly it didn't hurt Punk 
the the loss didn't hurt him because Lesnar needed the win. And not only that, but Punk can use what I said, which is, you know, yeah, he, he may have won the battle, but I won the war and I'm still here. And that's what Punk has pretty much been doing as of late. So overall, like I said, SummerSlam, definitely top five of 2013. Now let's talk about Monday Night Raw because Raw, of course, came in. Um, Cena opens up Raw, not a shocker, cutting a, a an awesome promo, again, putting over Daniel Bryan. And Daniel Bryan comes out and has what I want to call almost a Stone Cold Steve Austin Vince McMahon promo moment with Stephanie McMahon. It was good, and I really liked just the way that Daniel Bryan is just viewed as being not the ideal WWE superstar. I like that because, like I said, there's shades of Austin and McMahon in there because when Stone Cold was in that same situation, he was viewed the same way, just not the ideal uh, corporate spokesperson for the company. You know, I like that they reference, you know, Daniel Bryan not being the big guy. It, it, it was so well done. And Daniel Bryan, uh, above all else, he really knew how to how to work with Stephanie McMahon. It's funny because a lot of people, they work with the McMahons, and sometimes I think they're so... I, I don't I don't want to say they're, they're, they're overpowered with it, but it just feels like they kind of scale back because they don't want to overshadow the boss. On the contrary... Daniel Bryan showed incredible chemistry with Stephanie McMahon, and I really, really liked the way that she did it. And I knew that this was going to have a huge payoff. Of course, Daniel Bryan getting removed by security was a nice touch. And again, shades of, of Austin and the McMahons from, you know, years past. And now the thing about that is that a lot of people don't view it that way, but it, there, there's, there's so many undertones of Austin and McMahon and the way they're booking Daniel Bryan that... It's not bad. It's just something that I picked up because I'm like, you know, they're they're really going this route. Now, in Daniel Bryan's case, he, he can sell it just with his wrestling alone. And there's so many obstacles you can throw in front of him because he's feuding with management, which is going to lead to a multitude of great matches, of course, on his chase to get the belt from Randy Orton. But definitely a solid opener. We got another we got a rematch between uh, Damian Sandow and Cody Rhodes. I really didn't understand why they did that because the match they had Sunday night was good and Cody Rhodes went over again in this match. So I, I was I was a little dumbfounded by at why they decided to do that. But, you know, what can you do? Now, Paul Heyman came out. He had his arm in a sling, cut a, a, a very, very good promo, um, talking about how, you know, he wanted CM Punk to come back. He knew CM Punk was going to come back. And, you know, I really liked... The, the smarminess and the scumminess in his voice when he's like, yeah, I forgive you. And that's the beauty of a guy like Paul Heyman. Paul Heyman knows what to say and what to do to really add to that feud. And there's no better proof than a segment that happens later on in the broadcast with CM Punk and with Paul Heyman. So Cameron and Naomi took on Layla and AJ and what I expected to be a better match, I mean, it was it was roughly three minutes. It wasn't bad at all. Um, the crazy thing about this match that killed me was that you could see that Naomi is definitely the stronger link in the Funkadactyls tag team or duo, however you want to view it. Only because Cameron, Cameron got b- barely any time in the ring. Like, it was Naomi, Layla, and AJ for, for the bulk of the match. 
I don't know what what it is, whether Cameron's not learning fast enough or they just want to kind of hide her weaknesses. But the the fact is that Naomi's really kind of do you want to say she's she's the HBK to, to Cameron's Marty Jannetty. Not to say that that her wrestling is on par with Marty Jannetty, but just you can see who the breakout star is from a mile away. Now, earlier on in the broadcast, they set up a, a handicap match between Dolph Ziggler and The Shield. Now, pe- people can view this one of two ways. Either A, The Shield is getting the bump up, or Ziggler's getting the bump down. I didn't view it either way. A lot, a lot of websites really they were talking about like, yeah, man, Dolph Ziggler's fucking getting shit on, or the Shield is is getting shit on, getting jobbed out to, to Dolph Ziggler. I don't think that was the case. I really think that they wanted to move the story along with people talking badly about Triple H and the Shield are the best guys to do something like that with. Yeah, sure, you can go with, oh, I'm gonna put you in a match with a mystery opponent, and nine times out of ten. It's, you know, Mark Henry, the great Kali, or the Big Show, or Kane. We've seen it. Putting him in a match with the Shield, not only was it good for them, but it was also good for Ziggler because it really allowed him to work with with each of them individually. And you could see, like, like him and Rollins looked really good. They looked really comfortable together. Him and Ambrose did. And he really bumped a lot for Roman Reigns and you know, it was crazy the way it was done because the final, the, the ending to that match with Ziggler charging out of the out of the corner and getting caught in a midair spear, it was a beautiful spot. And once again, just adds to what everybody says that Dolph Ziggler, when it comes to selling moves, he's just he's in a class all his own. And honestly, I don't think this is a, um, I don't think this is punishment for either of these guys, either for the Shield or for Dolph Ziggler. I just think that they made the the best of of a situation. For the sake of moving a story along. And I had no problem with that. Now, one match that's been talked about quite a bit online was Del Rio taking on Sin Cara, which, you know, I, I have a lot of issues with this because there's, first of all, Sin Cara went for a dive, hurt his wrist, uh, his wrist, uh, hurt his wrist, and they stopped the match abruptly. Del Rio kept whooping his ass. Now, as it turns out, allegedly, they're saying that Del Rio got mad that Sin Cara got injured, and that's why he kind of kept laying into him post-match. Now, you can view that a couple of different ways, but I I personally feel that Del Rio and Sin Cara have always had like some underlying beef, and a lot of people feel that this whole Sin Cara experiment was, has been just a disaster. But you know what it is? He, the guy dislocated his finger. I... I can understand what people are saying when it's like, yo, dudes have torn their quads and finished matches. You could have finished the match. And whatever. It's un- There's two schools of thought with that. Me, personally, I feel that should Sin Cara have toughed it out and kind of finished the match, albeit injured, and maybe it would have had a, a different outcome, perhaps. But what I didn't like was the fact that he got injured and Del Rio, for the sake of telling the story kind of kept beating on him because it's like you didn't, nobody knew what exactly got injured. I thought he injured his wrist until I read later on, he dislocated his finger. And I'm like, dude, you know what? If the guy would have, you know, he would have broke his wrist or something and you're over here laying into him. Don't get me wrong. Sin Cara, Sin Cara's fucking Mr. Glass with a mask. It's like, you should just go dig into, into unbreakable, 
throw Samuel L. Jackson under the Sin Cara mask and have him wrestle. Because I swear, you sneeze on that fucking guy and he gets hurt instantly. Now, a lot of people were asking me about um, a tag team that was announced on Raw called Los Matadores, the, the Matadors. Now, before I get into that, I want to talk about the tag match that happened with uh, the Real Americans and the Primetime Players. Now, Zeb Coulter came out and cut a his typical um, closet racist promo that he always does, you know, his, his quasi-Vince McMahon's True Feelings promo, and no shocker, the Primetime Players were out there, and... A lot of people instantly said, you see, they're getting a push because of, of Darren Young and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, look, man, and this is something I've 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 come to, to accept. I look at the primetime players as two talented individuals in a tag team. I don't look at it as a gay guy and a straight guy or a guy that just came out of the closet, whatever. I look at it as two guys playing characters that wrestle well. That's it. As as long as WWE doesn't make uh, Darren Darren Young's homosexuality a focal point, we are fine. If you want to go out there and, and 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 push the primetime players and just on the strength of getting good with with Glad and and with the gay community, fine. I have no problem with that. But don't don't make it a crutch. Don't make it a focal point. The fact is, the primetime players are extremely have always been underrated. I've never I was always with a love hate relationship for their gimmick. But I feel that the way that they portray themselves, even though they were heels, is begging for them to be faces. And I've said this before. It's like, who doesn't want to chant millions of dollars or do or do the dance in the crowd? It's like it's like that's something that's that's more face worthy than heel. Same thing with the, you know, the barking that Titus O'Neil does. That's the kind of stuff that the crowd can get behind like this in in the blink of an eye. And quite frankly, I think that that's going to be a major selling point to get these guys over. Now, you know, the Real Americans, I I really, as much as Jack Swagger, they try to shove him down our throat, seeing Cesaro paired with him is so fucking weird. It just doesn't work. Like, I would have put Jack Swagger and um, Cassius Ono together just because at least that kind of works. Like, Antonio Cesaro's a foreign guy. And he's a great foreign heel, a tremendous wrestler. His tag team work with in the Kings of Wrestling um, was fucking masterful. It was it was on a on a, in a league of its own. I really feel that partnering him with Swagger, who is so weak on the mic, it's like Cesaro's not weak on the mic. Cesaro doesn't even need a manager. Cesaro just needs to get screen time and good opponents. You put Antonio Cesaro in there with CM Punk, you're guaranteed a good match. You put him in there with Daniel Bryan, you're guaranteed a good match. You put hell, you put him in there with Del Rio, you'd get a solid match. Same thing with Christian. Same thing with a lot of these guys. That's that's kind of where you want to go. Now, let's talk about the Matadors. My I have a couple of issues. Primo and Epico, the Goya brothers as I affectionately call them were repackaged as the Matadors. Their gimmick, wrestling bullfighters. Well, masked wrestling bullfighters. Now, if you looked at the video package I shared on the website, it's pretty much Tito Santana and Aldo Montoya had a fucking baby and pretty much shit out the Matadors. 
Now, if you want this gimmick to get over, then fuck it. Make Tito Santana their manager. I could I could deal with that. That'd be kind of cool. A little nostalgia. Be a nice way to kind of give Tito Santana something to do, especially with his Legends deal. And it would kind of work. As for, as for Primo and Epico, listen. It's easy. They thought, oh, we'll put them with Rosa, and that that's going to get them over. You know, Rosa with whatever substance abuse, drinking, bad Spanish hang-up that she has... She kind of took the focus away because everybody just said, "Hey, look at this badass chick that's out there." The you know Primo and Epico they come from a from a legendary wrestling family from from the Colons. You know Carlos Colon, um, Carlito, of course. It, it, they, they, their pedigree is so deep. Their wrestling is so good, but they're so pigeonholed in 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 these stereotypical gimmicks that it just like I've always said the racial overcoats that sometimes. For for as much as they're overused, they they become a crutch. There's no better example. Jinder Mahal. Jinder Mahal can be a heel without having to come to the ring with a fucking turban if he's in a rock band. It's stupid. It's like, look, I'm in a rock band, but I'm also, you know, Indian. Look at my turban. Does my turban give me away? It's it's a it's a it's such a foolish fucking notion that they go and they do that. This 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 over this over reliance on on racial gimmicks like Spanish bullfighters is this 1987 is is this like the Mountie where you or 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 the big boss man where you had the wrestling cop and the wrestling criminal and the wrestling Mountie and the wrestling Viking and the wrestling hockey player and you know the wrestling Zamboni operator or whatever other lame ass gimmick you wanted to churn out it it's terrible it's terrible. You want to do something, at least if you're going to put them under masks, just make them, you know, Mexican luchadors or something. But don't just throw them under a mask and then give them matador gimmicks. It's stupid. And sure, they could come out and they can wrestle as good as they as they can and the crowd may get into it. But you know what? They're getting into the wrestling, not the fucking gimmick. You know they're going to come out with the with the bullfighter hat and the, and the bullfighter cape and the shiny fucking chaps, and it's just gonna look, it's, it's like watching Vega from Street Fighter wrestle in WWE television, that's where we're going, like, like, these caricatures, these, these personas you try to, to create, based on just, like I said, these racial stereotypes, it, it, it eludes me why they rely on it so, so much, they really do, like, there's guys that, they really can benefit from being repackaged. Sure. You want to repackage, you know, Primo and Epico, knock yourselves out. But there's better ideas. There's better gimmicks. Who just said, hey, let's make them bullfighters. And I guarantee it was some some TV writer that said to Vince, you know, let's make them bullfighters. Damn it. That's a great idea. Let's put a mask on them. Get the Goyas in here. You two are going to be masked Spaniards. But but Vince, we're Puerto Rican. It's all the same. Seriously, like, do you think Vince knows the difference between Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, Ecuadorians, and Spanish? Probably between Mexicans and everybody else. Because he's going to be like, oh, Mexican wrestlers wear masks, you know, and they eat tacos. Like, like, like that's how that's how one-dimensional I feel Vince is. As for, you know, Sin Cara's in that same boat. He's a masked wrestler. He has nothing else going for him. Like... Maybe you want to create like a trio stable. Primo, Epico, and Sin Cara. Maybe put them under masks. Maybe Sin Cara gets tired of getting beat up every week. 
and he says, it's funny, I would I would make Sin Cara's promos him holding up cue cards if you don't want to make him speak. Him holding up cue cards where it says, I'm going to get help. And just have him show up with, th- with two other masked luchadors and kind of make a trio stable and use the free birds rule. It works, it works in three benefits. Number one, it gets Primo and Epico out there. It gets them wrestling. Number two, it removes the spotlight from Sin Cara a little bit to where they can work the trios matches and they can go in there and alternate a little bit. I mean, it's what 3MB is doing just without belts. I think adopting that type of a, of a stance, with, at least with, with Sin Cara, will extend the longevity of his character and kind of not have him out there all the time. Plus, get Primo and Epico wrestling. But you know what that is? That's logic. That shit doesn't exist around here. So, the Big Show ran his mouth about Triple H, and he got thrown into a handicap match, and we all know how that was going to end, and it was exactly as we would expect with the Shield hitting the Big Show with the powerbomb. A lot of solid spots. I really thought um, Seth Rollins was still nursing the knee injury he suffered at the beginning of his match. Some people have been saying that that's just really good selling on his part. You never know. But, um... It was it was solid. I think that the the match was good. The Big Show is in incredible shape, and as usual, he made the Shield look good. Now, let's get into CM Punk's promo because that that was on some whole other shit. CM Punk came out and pretty much obliterated a fan. He obliterated this guy that I guess was was heckling him based on what people were saying. You know, CM Punk was being heckled by this guy, and. Um, Needless to say, it didn't end well. CM Punk ripped this guy to shreds with his mic work. And I'm trying to find the promo because it was just it was just so ridiculous how and how and how angry CM Punk was. Like he was legitimately pissed off and he let this guy know it. I was like, well fuck. You know, it was it was insane. I don't know. I think we're only gonna get CM Punk and Curtis Axel, and I don't think we're gonna get the CM Punk promo because I'm looking for it here. And I just, I just don't see it. But I, I pretty much CM Punk came out. There was this fat guy in the front row that I guess he said something. And CM Punk ripped this guy to shreds. And then after he ripped the guy to shreds, Paul Heyman, you know, Paul, Paul Heyman came out. And he also worked on the fly with CM Punk's fat guy reference from the front row. And it was just, again, masterful promo work, which led to... Uh, an impromptu match between Curtis Axel and CM Punk, or it wasn't even a, a a match per se. It was just a fucking brawl with CM Punk giving Curtis Axel the beating of his life, and it was it was solid, man. There was nothing wrong with it. Again, good storytelling. And if what I, if the rumors I'm hearing are to be believed, the next Heyman guy may be a Heyman girl. So, what this means for Punk, I couldn't tell you, but you can't just feed. Curtis Axel to Punk and and put the U.S. title on the line because you know Punk is going to take it. What you need is maybe another Heyman guy to kind of just have Punk run the gauntlet. This is the this is the kind of, of situation where you bring up say uh you know a Leo Kruger from NXT, just a, a big guy that would that would really work well alongside CM Punk. I think that's what's missing because. The the whole thing about stables is you're fighting your way through all these guys and the guys who you're fighting are pretty much what I'd like to call you got your sub boss, your big boss, and, you know, kind of like your grunts. 
And when you look at Paul Heyman's guys, you got Brock Lesnar's the big boss. Curtis Axel, I don't really want to say he's he's a, he's a guy I'd book as a as a secondary boss. I'd call up, like I said, a Leo Kruger, maybe a, a Corey Graves. Corey Graves, I think, would work really well with CM Punk. I think that the level of storytelling that could be told, and on top of that, the wrestling itself would just be fantastic. Like I said, Leo Kruger would have been would have been really good to to use in that particular situation because you have Punk, Kruger, and Axel, and that I mean, um, Lesnar, Kruger, and Axel. You would have got a new guy on the roster, and like I said, you would have had. Um, another guy that CM Punk could have worked with. Him just beating up Curtis Axel every week is going to run its course, and you're going to kind of rush for him and Paul Heyman's feud to come to a close. Bray Wyatt took on R-Truth, and it was pretty much murder, death, kill. Very academic. Um, 3MB took on the Usos. The Usos, as usual, look good in their matches. They're really stepping their game up. Um, 3MB, in this particular instance, it was uh, Slater and Mahal, McIntyre was working ringside duty, and the Usos look good. I really like the uh, the no-look uh, big splash that Jimmy used to finish off Jinder Mahal. Very impressive. Again, 3MB is another group of guys that you can book them in that Freebirds rule, and you can have them be a decent, a decent heel trio. The problem is that they've just been jobbed out so much that it just it just doesn't work the same, which is unfortunate because I think there's a tremendous upside to each one of those guys individually as a group, eh, you know, not so much. The Miz took on Wade Barrett in a match that was pretty much what I'd like to call angle advancement, you know, Fandango coming out of nowhere, dropping the big leg on the Miz while he was delivering the figure four to Wade Barrett, him and Summer Rae dance, of course, Fandango and the Miz feuding. And it was, it was, you know, it was all right. The, the Randy Orton championship coronation though was, the, what really jumped out for me because they had the entire roster out there. The logic that Triple H used to validate what he did was impeccable. I mean, he the, the beauty of, of really good heels are that they believe that what they're doing is right. And this particular heel turn, when you're listening to the promo, you're like, oh, I mean, I understand where he's coming from. He's trying to do what's right for business. But the problem is that it's not it's not Triple H's work or the McMahon's work, but it's just Orton. Like the way it was done, like I really like that the roster was out there and then the shield was kind of the hired guns, which leads me to believe that it it would be a great reveal to say that Vince McMahon was behind the shield the whole time he was financing the shield or he brought the shield in just because it would at least bring the angle full circle. It looks like now the shield is just hired guns and that was just a big plot hole that I always felt never got answered. It was like who brought the shield in? Who signed them? You know, who who lets them run wild through throughout the shows? And in this instance, they were utilized very well, and and you know the storytelling was there. I just feel that you can't have Randy Orton use the McMahon's as a crutch the entire time. Don't get me wrong; his feud, the feuds are. I mean, his mic work is meh, depending on who he's feuding with. The only payoff I can see with this is if we get maybe a Daniel Bryan and Triple H match. Maybe Triple H is going to hang up the suit and come out there and fight Daniel Bryan, which which I wouldn't mind, like kind of just work his way through to get to um to get to Randy Orton. I could I could live with that. But 
I mean, the coronation was fine. The angle advancement was good. And just the, the insistence on making Brian the underdog was definitely one of the higher points. If I had to say anything negative about Raw, like I said, is that they're, you know, the whole Matador, th- the, the Matadors thing and just certain certain aspects of pacing and, and storytelling. Just like I said, the unnecessary Cody Rhodes and Sandow match, eh, you know, th- those were just just small little negatives. But in terms of just a post-show Raw, I think they definitely delivered. All right, so. Last bit of wrestling I want to get out of the way. I want to talk about uh, TNA because TNA, of course, had Impact earlier this evening. And usually most times I can't talk about Impact because it's going on while the show is going on. But I will say that TNA, they've been cutting so much fat. They've been trimming so much out of their roster. And there were, again, aspects of, of... the the show that really really worked and then there were just things that fell flat like this whole Tito Ortiz aces and eights thing it just doesn't work now you know the X Division Championship match between Manic and Sanjay Dutt was um it was it was pretty good but it felt like these guys were kind of going through the motions I expected more energy in this match um you know they for for them making such a big deal about the X Division reverting back to one on one matches. It just it just looks so I don't want to say academic, but it felt slower paced than you would expect for an X Division match, which is which is unfortunate. Now, the um the street fight for the twenty points in the Bound for Glory series was you know, I'm tired of the Joseph Park gimmick, and I think that's one of the reasons why I hated this match, and I'm really not a fan of Jay Bradley either. I mean, I know he's in there pretty much to eat pinfalls, but still you know, he's like the BFG fall guy, more or less. But the the storytelling that really gets me is, you know, Christopher Daniels, Aries, Rude, and Kazarian. Because there's potential there for some tremendous, tremendous matches, especially with Aries feuding with those guys. Now, Hernandez, I've always felt Hernandez is in flux. Because he's the kind of guy that WWE would strap a rocket to and push. He's big, he's jacked up, he can connect with the Latino audience, but his Spanish is shit. Now... He's when I look at him in TNA, I always look at him like he's the he's the never was. In other words, he's a guy that had all this potential, had had this great look, but he's he's been careless in the ring a couple of times, has bitten him in the ass, and I just feel that they're afraid of letting him run, run with the ball. But right after he did um Mexican America, right before he did Mexican America, and they were kind of booking him as Super Mex. I think that would have been a, a great time to get him a, a, a championship run, even if it would have been a one-time thing just to test the waters, only because that's a guy that he's homegrown talent. There's so much, there's so many diamonds in the rough in TNA. You know, Matt Morgan was one that uh, underutilized. Joey Ryan was another. Um, Amazing Red was another, and that's not even because he was my colleague, you know, my friend, but just because... Uh, he, he added something. Doug Williams is another just guys whose opportunities in the organization were squandered to make way for, you know, Bischoff's Bischoff's kid and, you know, Festus and the rest of those guys. It just it just is lacking. And these are the things that are kind of biting TNA in the ass. You know, I mean, Brooke Hogan got the boot and um, there was actually a payoff for that this week, which I want to discuss. But, you know, it's it's unfortunate, like when you have. When you're relying on Joseph Park to get over versus Abyss, who is, again, just a staple of the company, 
it's it's strange to me. It just it, in terms of, uh, of booking, it just boggles my fucking mind. Now, you know, Bully Ray comes out. He he calls Brooke out, but it's not the Brooke you think. It's not Brooke Hogan, but it's Brooke Tessmacher. So you know uh, the the surprise reveal was you know it was it was okay. It was kind of cool, but. The problem is that it was it was ruined by the fact that it was reported that Brooke Hogan was no longer with TNA, and that kind of, you know, it, it kind of, yeah, you know, it, it took away from the segment. Tito's involvement is such a blatant Bellator shill, and I don't mind that, but the problem is that you're supposed to be in partnership, and it's pretty much TNA giving Bellator free promotion with zero payoff. Like, if you told me, hey, Tito's been working in... um in OVW and he's going to wrestle some, some matches here or there, or, you know, we may get, we may get a, a, a six man tag match with rampage, but it's just Tito walking around shilling punishment on free TV and being a lackey for bully Ray. It was, it was extremely, extremely disappointing. It really was. I mean, Tito joining aces and eights. I saw it a mile away, especially when he showed up unannounced. I said, Tito's going to join aces and eights because rampage is part of the main event mafia. You saw it. And it's, again, unfortunate because if these guys came in and in terms of cross-promotion just applied the fundamentals to do some wrestling and get some some passable matches, it would make the relationship not seem as one-sided, in my opinion. Because that's what it fucking looks like. It's pretty much um, TNA spreading the cheeks, Spike TV providing the lube, and Bellator delivering the goods. That's really what it is. You know, TNA is really the bitch in this situation, which is... You know, in a, in a terrible way to look at it, they 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 are you know the 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 female dog that has the the random dog walking down the street just run up and jump on him, and that's what it is. That's what TNA is. TNA is the 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 old lady walking her poodle, and Bellator is the Rottweiler that runs up on the poodle. That's that's what it is, and it's it's crazy because TNA is a more established company. For as much work as they've put into getting their product out there, they should be further ahead. And for every one little thing that they do that's right, they do three things that are wrong. We got a a very good match between ODB and Gail Kim, and it continues to reinforce what I've said. And that's that TNA has a better women's division than WWE. And this match definitely proved that. I honestly feel that, um, you know, ODB and Gail Kim... They were both squandered during their runs in WWE. Hopefully, they can do some stuff with TNA. All right, so Hulk Hogan comes back to the Impact Zone next week. We get some shit with Mr. Anderson, which is meh. Let's get to the main event. Now, the way this was going was that the loser would have to leave TNA. Now, this is either because this person's contract isn't being renewed or they're taking a new position in the company. In this case, it's Devon. Devon ate the pinfall, so either Devon is out or Devon is getting a job in management. Now, the, the biggest the biggest swerve out of the whole thing was that with Kurt Angle being in rehab, you wondered, hey, who was going to be the newest member of the main event mafia? That, ladies and gentlemen, was AJ Styles, and it was crazy because it wasn't emo, black jacket AJ Styles. It was the phenomenal one with his old music, and it, it was weird because it was like it was such a, a random turn and I hope they got a good reason for it next week because it's like 
yo, you went from making AJ this badass loner dude with a with the awesome calf killer submission move, which I really, really liked, and then all of a sudden it's like, eh, you know, it was, it was okay. I will say Rampage didn't look bad in that match. Rampage looked all right. He looked a little. He he looked out of place briefly, but then he kind of he kind of hit his groove and it looked good. But again, very very missed, uh, very hodgepodge this week. It was just a lot of shit thrown together. Um, AJ coming back with a phenomenal gimmick. It, it's definitely refreshing to see. And the last bit of wrestling news I want to close out with is that AJ's going through contract negotiations with TNA and he's kind of teasing going to another promotion. Now, could AJ be bound for WWE? Who knows? But me personally as a fan, I'd love to see him there. I think he could mix it up very well with a lot of those guys. Of course, people are quick to say that AJ is not championship material, but I think AJ has a tremendous upside. He can add a lot to the roster on the WWE side. And I think that the the, the, the WWE machine can really work with AJ Styles and get his strengths up, especially his mic work. His wrestling is always stellar and it's always on point, but his mic work is always his detriment. But we'll see what happens in the coming weeks. Who knows? We may see AJ Styles do a run-in on an, on, on a on a pay-per-view or on a Monday Night Raw broadcast. We shall see how it pans out. Anyway, that's going to wrap it up for this week and our very first MTR in 60. Thank you guys for tuning in. My Take Radio returns live next Thursday at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific. I'm out of here. Thanks for listening. Peace.
MTRN60 is now over. For real this time. You can listen to live episodes every Thursday at 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific by heading over to mtrlive.com. You can also listen to simulcasts on Blog Talk Radio, Mixler, and also on the GFQ Network, gfqlive.tv. You can also find us on Twitter at My Take Radio. Become a fan on Facebook and add us to your circle on Google+. Thanks for listening.